Only he who has traveled the road knows where the holes are deep. Chinese proverb. Chapter 2. Anomalies in Ancient Histories As a further challenge to our preconceptions, this chapter will review a variety of geographical and archaeological issues which are not consistent with our traditional understanding of history. The first section deals with anomalies revealed by a study of ancient maps of the continents of the world. It is generally accepted today that Columbus's voyage in 1492 was not the first navigation across the Atlantic. The Viking, Bjarni Haraldsson, discovered America by accident in approximately 985 CE. While Haraldsson did not land in America and returned to Greenland, Leif, the son of Eric the Red, did land and gave names to it such as Heluland, Markland and Vinland. The story of these and further voyages are recounted in the sagas of the Greenlanders and that of Eric the Red. There is also a controversial theory, supported by DNA evidence, that the Clovis, a prehistoric Native American culture, dated approximately 13,000 years ago, found their origins in an ancient European people called the Salutrian, dating from 21,000 years ago. These Europeans are also linked to the Clovis by similar primitive technology, for instance, spearheads made of flint and shaped by the same method of working. The suggestion is that these Europeans did not cross the Bering Strait and move southward through North America, but in fact crossed the Atlantic. This was achieved by using survival skills, moving from ice floe to ice floe and using fishing for sustenance, in a similar way to that of the Inuit people or Eskimos. On the subject of navigation, there are some particularly ancient maps in existence, the most famous being the Piri Rais map of 1513, presently housed in the library of the Topkapi Palace Museum in Istanbul. Piri Rais was an admiral in the Turkish fleet who claimed that he benefited from about 20 maps and world maps dating back to the 4th century BCE. He stated that no one up to this day and age had made a similar kind of map. The map referred to shows not only the western coast of Europe and Africa, but also, surprisingly, the eastern coast of Central and South America and the northern coast of Antarctica. Unfortunately, I was unable to view the original, but the map clearly shows the Falkland Islands at their correct latitude, even though these islands were not officially discovered until 1592. The most fascinating aspect of the map, however, centres on its depiction of Antarctica. It was an explorer named Fabian Bellingshausen who was the first person to sight the Antarctic continent on the 27th of January 1820. So the map of 1513 shows Antarctica some 300 years before this continent was officially discovered. Even more interesting is that the lower part of the map portrays the Princess Martha coast of Queen Maudland, Antarctica, although the accuracy of the geographical detail can only be confirmed in our age by seismic survey technology. This shows that the coast was mapped in some way prior to the ice cap, which is up to two miles deep in places today. Geographical evidence confirms that the last date that Queen Maudland was ice-free was in 4000 BCE and quite possibly earlier. 
Therefore, the question must be asked, which cartographer existed some 6,000 years ago to provide a map of such amazing accuracy? Seismic survey technology is a powerful tool which detects what is below the Earth's surface. It was first used in the 1920s and employs sound waves that reflect from underground rock layers, providing a vision into the Earth. The recorded data then creates two-dimensional maps. The Piri Reis map is not a hoax, and indeed, further maps exist to support this anomaly, such as the Aruntius Phineas map of 1531, which shows the entirety of Antarctica and depicts bays without ice and mountains which now lie under the ice cap. There is also the 1737 map of Antarctica by Philip Borsch, which shows the continent as two islands. Geologists maintain that it has been millions of years since the entire continent was free of ice. Again, it is only with the advent of seismology that... Whilst we once thought of Antarctica as one continent, we now know that it is made up of two landmasses under a rather thick covering of ice. This impacts on Darwin's theory of evolution in that, if thousands of years ago we were supposedly an unevolved species, how then could the knowledge and ability to map at these times, and with such accuracy, have existed? A full account of these and other such maps can be best found in Charles Hapgood's book Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, published in 1966. Charles Hapgood is also known for his work on earth crust displacement, which was endorsed by Einstein. This was a radical theory in its day, and in an initial response to Hapgood's Earth's Shifting Crust, Einstein wrote, I find your arguments very impressive and have the impression that your hypothesis is correct. One can hardly doubt that significant shifts in the Earth's crust have taken place repeatedly and within a short time. Until the geological revolution in the 1960s, that of continental drift and plate tectonics, Hapgood's theory had not been taken seriously by the scientific fraternity. However, these two theories mentioned previously are not entirely at variance with each other. Einstein and Hapgood continued with their correspondence and met in 1955. Einstein wrote in the foreword to Hapgood's Earth's Shifting Crust, a key to some basic problems of Earth science, stating, I frequently receive communications from people who wish to consult me concerning their unpublished ideas. It goes without saying that these ideas are seldom possessed of scientific validity. The first communication, however, that I received from Mr. Hapgood electrified me. His idea is original, of great simplicity, and, if it continues to prove itself, of great importance to everything that is related to the history of the Earth's surface. I think that this is rather astonishing, even fascinating, an idea that deserves the serious attention of anyone who concerns himself with the theory of the Earth's development. Unfortunately, Hapgood lost a formidable champion for his work with the death of Einstein in 1955. Further anomalies exist pertaining to megalithic structures of antiquity. Megalithic, meaning made of or marked by large stones, features in many of the structures of cultures of antiquity around the globe. In many instances, it is quite remarkable that stones so large were used when smaller, more manageable ones would have sufficed. The crane used for the lifting of heavy loads is known to have been invented by the Greeks in 6 BCE. 
However, information obtained at the Institute of Mechanical Engineers London and confirmed by many crane hire companies shows that whilst there are specialist cranes that are capable of lifting a greater weight, the average tower crane, as used on any building site that one might see today and which contends with our multi-storey buildings, can lift up to 19 tonnes. By contrast, the smallest ancient megaliths discussed in Caduceus are at least an estimated 50 tons. All ancient megaliths are of enormous size and in estimated weight vary from about 50 to over 1,000 tons, dependent on the country and the site. Their forms range from massive building blocks, as in the Egyptian pyramids, to blocks for ancient external walls, as in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, to gigantic statues, as in Easter Island. In Oxum in Ethiopia, there is a granite obelisk which stands upright and weighs 300 tons. In Peru, at a most impressive and beautiful site called Sacsayhuaman, the fortress as it is referred to by some, is made up of many polygonal blocks which sit so precisely with their neighbours that the point of my penknife could not fit between them. The largest of the stone blocks making up the external wall is 28 feet in height and approximately 350 tons in weight. There are also impressively large stone blocks to be found at Machu Picchu. However, at another site, that of Olante Tambo, you can find granite stone slabs weighing between 100 and 200 tons. In Bolivia, at Pumapunca, near the site of Tiahuanaco, which is thought to date back to 10 to 15,000 BCE, there exist two sandstone blocks estimated to weigh between 2 and 300 tons, and also a number of stones weighing from 100 to 150 tons, with one in particular weighing approximately 440 tons. There are also stones on this site that have extremely precise grooves and niches, in addition to tiny holes which can only be described as drilled. On Easter Island, there are some 887 anthropomorphic Moai statues carved from volcanic rock, the largest being known as the giant, which is 21.6 metres high and weighs approximately 145 to 165 tonnes. The largest, still in place, is 9.8 metres high and approximately 82 tonnes. Moreover, there are several Moai statues on top of which are placed crowns or top knots, the largest being 1.8 metres high and weighing approximately 11 tonnes. At Stonehenge in Wiltshire, United Kingdom, which dates back to approximately 2200 BCE, the lintel circle consisting of sarsen stones are some 20 feet tall and weigh up to 50 tonnes and were transported from 20 miles away. Another impressive site is at Avebury, where, unlike Stonehenge, the local stones of the Avebury circles are of natural unworked stone and weigh up to 20 tonnes. And if you thought that Britain was devoid of pyramid-like structures, you would be mistaken. There is Silbury Hill in Wiltshire, the largest man-made prehistoric mound in Europe. It is conical in shape and covers five acres. It is... 130 feet tall and 100 feet across its flat top and dates back to 2660 BCE. It is much the same size as some of the smaller pyramids in Egypt. In India, in the village of Konark, sits the Black Pagoda, which has a capstone that weighs approximately 1,000 tonnes. 
Within the Temple of Jerusalem, also known as the Temple of Solomon, of which only the western wall now remains, there are stone blocks ranging in weight from 5 to 50 tons. The most spectacular of all, however, I accessed via the western or Wailing Wall tunnels, where, at the base of the structure, there are huge stone blocks that are approximately 42 feet long, 11 feet high and 13 feet thick, with a weight estimated at between 400 and 600 tons each. In Egypt, the Great Pyramid at Giza is made up of over 2 million individual stones, and all combined weigh approximately 6 million tons. Some of these stones are some 12 feet long and 6 feet thick, with an estimated weight of approximately 200 tons. The pyramid rises to a height of over 450 feet, and the conventional assertion that it took some 20 years to build would suggest that it required laying one block of stone every two minutes. Considering the complexity of the structure, this defies belief. It was on my third visit to Egypt that I went to see the Colossi of Memnon, which consists of two large statues depicting the pharaoh Amenhotep III, made out of one large stone that stands 65 feet high and weighs approximately 1,000 tons. There are further examples in Egypt which include the obelisk of Thutmosis I at Karnak, weighing approximately 140 tons, and the Osirian at Abydos, which consists of 100-ton blocks. In Lebanon, whilst visiting Phoenician and other sites, I went to a location named Baalbek, where there is the Temple of Jupiter that dates back approximately 5,000 years. Above several layers of carved stone blocks, and not at the base which suggests elevation, there is what is known as the Trilithon, three large stones weighing in between 600 and 800 tons each. However, less than a mile away from the site is a fourth megalith, for some reason unused, which is some 80 feet in length and weighs around 1,100 tons. It is rather humbling to stand on the largest hewn rock in the world. As discussed at the beginning of the section, cranes today would have great difficulty in moving such objects from a quarry to their present location, and in some instances, near impossible to transport such stones even using the technology available to us today. The traditional explanation for the ability to construct such edifices is manpower. However, many of the weights described here would have crushed wooden rollers and ruined dampened earth ramps. Indeed, there have been many televised programs in recent years which have endeavoured to recreate such achievements. None of these efforts have been particularly successful, albeit attempted on a much smaller scale. There are also astronomical anomalies in ancient times. The Maya employed astronomy to produce their calendar, of which Graham Hancock writes in his book, Heaven's Mirror. He states, It is a work of immense complexity, incorporating a more accurate calculation of the length of a solar year than our modern Gregorian calendar. An exact calculation of the period of the moon's orbit around the Earth and an exact calculation for the synodical revolution of Venus. The start date of their long count calendar is 3114 BCE, but officially the approximate date for the inception of the Maya peoples is 400 BCE. In Egypt, 
The three pyramids at Giza and the Nile mirrored the three stars in Orion's belt, with the Nile corresponding to the Milky Way. However, as cited in The Orion Mystery by Robert Bourval and Adrian Gilbert, it was at a time, due to the precession of equinoxes, dated as 10,500 BCE. The official dating of the pyramids is 2,500 BCE. The Earth goes through one complete precession cycle in a period of approximately 25,800 years, during which the position of the stars will slowly change. The Egyptians, surely with their precision in building, would have built the structures accordingly and without mistake to reflect 2500 BCE. The Sphinx is aligned to the constellation of Leo as it rises above the horizon, but here again, due to the precession of equinoxes, as it would have appeared over the horizon in 10,500 BCE. The precession of equinoxes is the motion of the equinoxes, the time or date twice a year at which the sun crosses the celestial equator, along the elliptic, the plane of the Earth's orbit, caused by cyclic precession of the Earth's axis of rotation. As there is no evidence that the Egyptian had any knowledge of precession, what then is the significance of this date, some 8,000 years prior to the official dating of this civilization? This theory is known as the Orion Correlation Theory, or OTC, and has been a recurring theme in the works of Graham Hancock and Robert Verval. There is another interesting point relating to Sirius, or the Dog Star, which is the brightest star in our galaxy and found to the southeast of Orion's belt. Sirius B, its neighbour, is blotted from our vision due to the brightness of A and the minute size of B. Sirius B burnt out some 30 million years ago and is known as the White Dwarf. Dwarf stars are made of dense material. Sirius B weighs about one metric tonne, and it was not discovered until 1926 by Western astronomers. The Dogon tribe, who are located in Mali in West Africa, knew of this star sometime prior to the discovery, at least hundreds of years before the information having been passed down from generation to generation. This was initially reported by two French anthropologists, Marcel Griol and Germain Dieterlen, who spent 25 years with the Dogon from 1931 to 1956 and were initiated into the tribe. These two anthropologists also reported that the Dogon appeared to know of the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter, which were not discovered until after the invention of the telescope in the 17th century. There are anomalies at other ancient sites, and whilst the stone heads of the Olmecs at La Venta did not make it into the megalithic section, they are worthy of note. The Olmecs were a tribe that preceded the Maya, their official existence dating from approximately 1200 BCE to 400 BCE. What is left of their culture can be best seen at La Venta in the state of Tabasco in Mexico. The large stoneheads, of which 17 have been found, are up to 9 feet tall, 22 feet in diameter and weigh more than 20 tons. In addition to the remarkable feat that it would have taken to move these stones into place, some 60 miles through jungle and swamps, the most incongruous aspect is the facial feature of these heads. Their appearances are all African or Negroid in origin. 
Let us not forget that they were a tribe that existed prior to the Maya and significantly prior to the arrival of Columbus in the New World. There is equality here, however, in that whilst no heads were found, there were a number of stele which depict bearded men of Caucasian origin at Olmec sites. In the Popol Vuh, the sacred book of the Maya, it says, There were then in great number the black men and the white men of many classes, men of many tongues. It was wonderful to hear them. This merely adds to the confusion since, according to our traditional understanding, there should have been no black or white men in Central America at any point BCE or indeed prior to Columbus and the Europeans in the New World, yet their images clearly point to their existence. When I was in Zimbabwe visiting the sites of antiquity there, I had a quasi-epiphanic moment. I was sitting alone at a high point at Great Zimbabwe, one of their more visited locations, at the top of what is called Sorcerer's Rock, letting my mind wander as I often do at these places, and remembering previous sites visited and their similarities. Great Zimbabwe is situated in the Matopo Hills, granite country, and it dawned on me that this was perhaps a connection. Perhaps the Olmecs had originated in Africa, why else would they have traversed miles of jungle and swamp to find volcanic rock from which to sculpt their monuments? It is also interesting to note that Matopo is also spelt Matobo, meaning bald heads, and indeed I have not seen an Olmec stone head which depicted hair. Later that evening, back at my hotel, I spoke to their in-house guide and produced a book that I had taken with me, The Lost Realms by Zechariah Sitchin, which illustrated a number of the Olmec heads and their individual features. The guide was taken aback by what I showed him and ascribed African nationalities to the heads according to the features. So convinced was he that they were African in origin. It is all a tad tenuous, I admit. However, I have yet to hear of a better possible link or explanation. There have been a number of rather bigoted archaeologists who refuse to acknowledge the negroid features of these heads. This is not dissimilar an attitude to that regarding the black pharaohs of Egypt. In a recent article on this subject in the National Geographic magazine, the author points out, The ancient world was devoid of racism. Artwork from ancient Egypt, Greece and Rome shows a clear awareness of racial features and skin tone, but there is little evidence that the darker skin was a sign of inferiority. Only after the European powers colonized Africa in the 19th century did Western scholars pay attention to the color of the Nubian skin to uncharitable effect. The article goes on to say that it is only recently that archaeological thought has moved away from the declaration that black Africans could not possibly have constructed these monuments. These monuments referred to are the pyramids in modern-day Sudan, which are greater in number than all of Egypt. Crystal skulls of varying sizes have been found in South America and linked to the Maya. Test on one in 1970 at Hewlett-Packard's Crystal Laboratories in Santa Clara show it to have been made from pure and natural quartz. This particular skull would have been made from an unusually large piece of quartz, Despite the cranium being detached from the jawbone, it was proved that both pieces were made from the same piece of quartz. The anomaly is that quartz is only marginally softer than diamond, which makes it incredibly difficult to carve, in addition to which it is brittle and has a tendency to shatter. 
In their book, The Mystery of the Crystal Skulls by Chris Morton and Siri Louise Thomas, they point out that the workmanship on the skull was so exquisite that the investigated team estimated that even if the carvers had used today's electronically powered tools with diamond tips, it would have taken at least a year to carve such an incredible object. Moreover, it would have been impossible to use such a power tool on the skull since the resultant vibration would have shattered the skull. The skull showed no signs of tool markings and therefore it had to be made by hand. This would have been a slow process, taking an estimated 300 years. The carvers would have had to start with a crystal three times as large as the finished skull and if they had made a mistake at any time along the way, they would have had to have started all over again. Peru is full of sites of antiquity belonging to a series of tribes, the last of which were the Incas. In addition to the sites mentioned earlier, the Nazca Lines are some 2,000 years old and a sight to behold. On a desert plain stretching over 50 kilometers from north to south and 5 to 7 kilometers wide, there are hundreds of carved straight lines, two of which are 9 kilometers long and absolutely straight. There are also geometric patterns such as a quadrangle, some 1,600 meters long, and gigantic figures including the hummingbird, the spider, the condor, the monkey, and the whale to name a few. Many experts think that there is a direct correlation between these figures and various constellations. The features on this plane, however, can only be seen in their individual entirety from the air by taking one of the tours in a small aeroplane. The scale is truly remarkable, and one wonders why the Nazcans went to such lengths to produce such images on the ground when they could not see them. It should be noted that there is no high ground in the vicinity on which one might be able to appreciate this work of such magnitude. The Sphinx at Giza, mentioned previously, has one further anomaly. The structure is officially dated and attributed to the pharaoh Khafre who ruled between 2520 and 2494 BCE, despite no inscription ever being found to link the two. John Anthony West and Dr. Robert Schock, an expert on the weathering of the limestone of which the Sphinx is made, disagree vehemently. The reason for this is that the Sphinx is eroded as evidenced by vertical and horizontal fissures, which are exclusively due to heavy rain over thousands of years. The difficulty revolves around the fact that Giza was an arid land in 2500 BCE, as it is today. Therefore, how can one explain such erosion? It is fact that the last time it rained sufficiently to erode the Sphinx to the extent that it has been is between 7000 and 5000 BCE. Author of Serpent in the Sky, John Anthony West, however, feels that that date could be even earlier at 10,000 or perhaps 15,000 BCE. There is also a great deal of similarity between the mythologies of many ancient cultures, and this is discussed in greater depth in Chapter 4. In this section, we discuss how these cultures first came into being. In many ancient cultures, there seems to have been a rather sudden start to their civilizations. That is to say, these people lived or rather existed quite comfortably, close to and dependent upon nature, concerning themselves with hunting and agriculture, 
a way of life enhanced with the use of fire and eased by an application of knowledge of the seasons. Across the world and within most of these societies, shortly after the end of the Ice Age, there seems to have been a spurt when they suddenly started believing in a god or omniscient entity and felt the impulse to build rather large structures made from incredibly large stones. There are many legendary or mythological accounts where a migration of people from other countries beyond the native shores are associated with the building of these large structures on these sites. This seems to lead to a similarity of structures in sites, sometimes thousands of miles apart, where there could have been no apparent previous communication. In certain ancient texts, accounts of these migrations often refer to the flood that destroyed their own countries and where only a handful of survivors escaped. With the Khmer people of Cambodia, there are many beautiful temples to be found today, for example, Angkor Wat, Angkor Tom, and Bayon, among others. It must be noted here that, standing in front of a number of the Cambodian temples, one could easily imagine standing in front of any number of Mayan temples. Such are the similarities in structure between these cultures who, by our traditional understanding, had no contact with each other. This sudden temple building in Cambodia was started in the 9th century CE and was continued for approximately 420 years by a succession of leaders by the name of Jayavaraman, the first of which came from across the sea. In the South Pacific, Nanmadal is an ancient site on the island of Pohnpei, the capital of the Federated States of Micronesia. It consists of 92 man-made islands covering 150 acres made out of basalt. The hexagonal stone logs of the major constructions are up to 25 feet in length, 25 feet high, weigh approximately 50 tons each and remain an archaeological mystery. Recent discoveries below the tidal level show that the site was occupied as early as 200 BCE. The origin of the basalt stones is unknown, and the hexagonal shape is natural and not man-made. According to Graham Hancock in his book Heaven's Mirror, these people recount a legend that the canals separating their temples were originally dredged by a dragon, which offered its assistance to Olasopa and Olasipa, the two mythical founders of the city. These two were said to be Anai Aramash, primordial god-kings who arrived in boats from a land to the west, bringing with them a sacred ceremony. On Easter Island, on which the Moai statues described previously are sighted, a potent supernatural being by the name of Yoke came from a place called Hiva, a mysterious island of enormous size which had suffered a great cataclysm and was submerged below the sea. A group of some 300 survivors from Hiva then set sail to seek out the island, Easter Island. It is said in one account that a reconnaissance voyage had previously been made by seven sages to prepare the island for settlement. In Egypt, there are also seven sages. These are depicted in the Temple of Edfu, which dates back to 2500 BCE, who fled from a far-off land, allegedly an island home of the primeval ones that had been destroyed by the flood. The task of these sages was to construct sacred mounds at key locations within Egypt, 
perhaps one and the same, were the Semsu Hor, the followers of Horus, semi-divine beings who settled in the Nile Valley in the remote past in the early primeval age. From the Egyptian Book of the Dead, there is a reference to the primeval fathers and mothers who arose from the celestial waters. It states, under the influence of Thoth, or that form of divine intelligence, which created the world by a word, eight elements, four male and four female, arose out of the primeval Nu, the celestial waters. Collectively were called the Kemenu, or the eight, and were considered as primeval fathers and mothers. In Mexico, there is the legend of Quetzalcoatl, as named by the Aztecs, or Kulkulkan, as described by the Maya. Kulkulkan is depicted as a plumed or feathered serpent, and can be found on many of the Mayan and Aztec temple sites. In this culture, we also find seven individuals, as can be identified by figures found at the remote site of Zibil Chaltun and as reliefs at the temple site of Ekbalam. Indeed, in the sacred book of the Maya, the Purple Vu, it speaks of peoples coming from the east. It states, It is not quite clear, however, how they crossed the sea. They crossed to this side, as if there was no sea. They crossed on stones placed in a row over the sand. For this reason, they were called stones in a row, sand under the sea, names given to them when they crossed the sea, the waters having parted when they passed. In the Chilambalam, another collection of Mayan texts, it speaks of the first inhabitants of the Yucatan, known as the Chenis, or People of the Serpent, also having come across the water from the east in their boats with their leader, Zamna, also known as Itzamna, Serpent of the East, a healer who could cure by the laying on of hands. The Popol Vuh also refers to the Flood, when it says, Truly there are clear examples of those people who were drowned, and their nature is that of supernatural beings. And as Bishop Las Casas says in his commentary on the Popol Vuh, they, the Maya, believed that certain persons who escaped the Flood populated their lands, and they were called the Great Father and the Great Mother. Of the Hopi tribe of North America, the Kashina people came into the fourth world. They were not people, but spirits, having taken the form of people to give help and guidance to other clans. The Hopi believed that the third world was also brought to conclusion by a flood. It was said that waters were loosed upon the earth and that waves higher than mountains rolled in upon the land. Continents broke asunder and sank beneath the seas. In Chinese culture, there are the mythical and legendary kings, the first of which, Fu He, settled in Shenxi. According to myths and legends of China, this mythical hero was the offspring of a miraculous conception and had dealings with dragons. Like the Babylonian Ea, a Mesopotamian deity, he instructed people how to live civilized lives. Before Fuhi came, it was written, They lived like animals and kept records by knotted cords, and he instructed them in the mysteries of lineal figures, which had a mystic significance. He also instructed the people to worship spirits. In some accounts of the earlier period, Fuhi is succeeded by his sister Nukwa, the heroine of the Flood. Within the Taoist religion, there are descriptions of the eight immortals, as described by the Pa Sien, one of the most popular representations in China. E.T.C. Werner, 
in his book Myths and Legends of China, discusses the Pasien, an illustrated account of the Eight Immortals' mission to the East. Werner writes that the phrase Pasien refers to the Eight Immortals crossing the sea, and that the usual mode of celestial locomotion was discarded by Lu Yen, who recommended that they should show the infinite variety of their talents by placing things on the surface of the sea and stepping on them. This is an account not dissimilar to the account by the Maya in the Popol Vuh. In Peru and of the Incas, there is the venerated Viracocha, meaning Lake of Creation, and also referred to as Ilya, or Light, a bearded man, universal creator and master of all. He made humankind, first by creating a generation of giants, whom he turned into stone when they displeased him. The remainder were dispatched by a great flood that inundated the world. Within Mesopotamian mythology, Atrahasis, meaning extremely wise, who also appears in the Gilgamesh epic, is named on a list of Sumerian kings, showing those who ruled before the flood and those who ruled afterwards. He, like Noah, was chosen to survive a deluge and to build a ship and to fill it with pairs of animals. In India, there are the seven sages or the seven rishis who are the authors of the Vedas from the Sanskrit word Veda, meaning knowledge or wisdom, and one of the sacred books of the Hindus from the 5th century BCE. According to legend, the rishis were men of extraordinary creativity and magical powers, and much of Sanskrit literature is devoted to accounts of their supernatural powers, including flying. Rishi literally means seer, a Hindu saint or sage, and of these, the Saptarshi, the seven seers, are particularly prominent. The length of the Brahma or Hindu cycle or era lasts some 306,720,000 years according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Each is divided into 14 Manvantaras, over which presides a Manu or teacher. Each Manvantaras is followed by a deluge, a flood, which destroys existing continents and swallows up all living things, except for a few who are preserved for the repopulating of the earth. In Greek mythology, there is the account of Deucalion and Pyrrha, who survived a great deluge, having been forewarned by Prometheus, in a ship that was well provided with food and came to rest on the peak of Mount Parnassus. In addition to all of these, there are further examples of such similarities and overlapping of myth by ancient cultures, between which there should have been no transmission of information. These include serpents or dragons as in Chinese mythology, the underworld and cycles or eras of civilization and existence. Of the latter, previous eras or cycles were renewed, and this point was marked by a calamity. An example of this is in the parallel between the Greek five successive ages of man and the Maya with their five worlds. In many cultures of antiquity, there seems to have been a rather sudden start to their civilizations. To put it into perspective, Forbidden History by J. Douglas Kenyon asks us to take Egypt as an example. From 5000 BCE, the end of the Epipaleolithic years, the period between the hunter-gatherers and the village-dwelling cultures, this agrarian society progressed from stone axes, 
flint arrowheads and pottery to quarrying and moving and placing 200-ton stones as the foundation of a 480-foot-high pyramid, approximately the height of a 50-story building, including 70-ton rocks hoisted to a level of 175 feet. Moreover, there seems to be no precedent, no discernible stages of development that led to this ultimate physical achievement. In fact, these ancient cultures all seem to recount the time when these changes took place by pointing to influencing figures that were affected by a flood and arrived on their shores. We might be able to find immediate and comfortable explanation should such an event occur surely between Mesopotamia and Greece, for instance, where, due to their geographical proximity, there could have been communication of this knowledge. This, however, is absolutely not the case. We find a diffusion of particularly similar knowledge between cultures which were in existence and location remote from each other and which, by our traditional understanding, would have had no interaction between each other. In summary, therefore, we find world maps which were particularly accurate existed prior to Columbus's voyage west in 1492. Indeed, such maps were so precise and accurate as to map Antarctica in 4000 BCE, which suggests that there was the ability to map more accurately than in the 1900s. We also find a great many structures of antiquity consists of blocks of stone that would, at very least, challenge, if not in some instances, make impossible their recreation today, even with our advanced technology. We also find that there is a wealth of mythology which suggests that there was a flood in ancient times. As these mythologies derive from all parts of the globe which, from our traditional understanding, would have had no contact with each other, then there is good reason to believe that the phenomenon of a flood was spread across the world at that time.